The May Chapter Spencervale Gossip always said that Old Lady Lloyd was rich and mean and proud. Gossip, as usual, was one-third right and two-thirds wrong. Old Lady Lloyd was neither rich nor mean. In reality, she was pitifully poor, so poor that crooked Jack Spencer, who dug her garden and chopped her wood for her, was opulent by contrast, for he, at least, never lacked three meals a day, and the old lady could sometimes achieve no more than one. But she was very proud, so proud that she would have died rather than let the Spencervale people, among whom she had queened it in her youth, suspect how poor she was, and to what straits was sometimes reduced. She much preferred to have them think her miserly and odd, a queer old recluse who never went anywhere, even to church, and who paid the smallest subscription to the minister's salary of anyone in the congregation. And her just rolling in wealth, they said indignantly. Well, she didn't get her miserly ways from her parents. They were real generous and neighborly. There never was a finer gentleman than old Dr. Lloyd. He was always doing kindnesses to everybody, and he had a way of doing them that made you feel as if you was doing the favor, not him. Well, well, let old Lady Lloyd keep herself and her money to herself if she wants to. If she doesn't want our company, she doesn't have to suffer it, that's all. Reckon she isn't none too happy for all her money and pride. No, the old lady was none too happy. That was unfortunately true. It is not easy to be happy when your life is eaten up with loneliness and emptiness on the spiritual side, and when on the material side all you have between you and starvation is the little money your hens bring you in. The old lady lived away back at the old Lloyd place, as it was always called. It was a quaint, low-eaved house, with big chimneys and square windows, and with spruces growing thickly all around it. The old lady lived there all alone, and there were weeks at a time when she never saw a human being except Crooked Jack. What the old lady did with herself and how she put in her time was a puzzle the Spencervale people could not solve. The children believed she amused herself counting the gold in the big black box under her bed. Spencervale children held the old lady in mortal terror. Some of them, the Spencer Road Fry, believed she was a witch. All of them would run if, when wandering about the woods in search of berries or spruce gum, they saw at a distance the spare, upright form of the old lady, gathering sticks for her fire. Mary Moore was the only one who was quite sure she was not a witch. Witches are always ugly, she said decisively. And old Lady Lloyd isn't ugly. She's real pretty. She's got such a soft white hair and big black eyes and a little white face. Those road children don't know what they're talking of. Mother says they're a very ignorant crowd. Well, she doesn't ever go to church, and she mutters and talks to herself all the time she's picking up sticks maintained Jimmy Kimball stoutly. The old lady talked to herself because she was really very fond of company and conversation. 
To be sure, when you have talked to nobody but yourself for nearly twenty years, it is apt to grow somewhat monotonous, and there were times when the old lady would have sacrificed everything but her pride for a little human companionship. At such times she felt very bitter and resentful toward fate for having taken away everything from her. She had nothing to love, and that is about as unwholesome a condition as is possible to anyone. It was always hardest in the spring. Once upon a time the old lady, when she had not been the old lady, but pretty, willful, high-spirited Margaret Lloyd, had loved springs. Now she hated them because they hurt her. And this particular spring of this particular May chapter hurt her more than any that had gone before. The old lady felt as if she could not endure the ache of it. Everything hurt her. The new green tips on the firs, the fairy mist down in the little beech hollow below the house, the fresh smell of the red earth crooked jack spaded up in her garden. The old lady lay awake all one moonlit night and cried for her very heartache. She even forgot her body hunger in her soul hunger. And the old lady had been hungry, more or less, all that week. She was living on store biscuits and water, so that she might be able to pay Crooked Jack for digging her garden. When the pale, lovely dawn color came stealing up the sky behind the spruces, the old lady buried her face in her pillow and refused to look at it. I hate the new day, she said rebelliously. It will be just like all the other hard common days. I don't want to get up and live in it. And oh, to think that long ago I reached out my hands joyfully to every new day, as to a friend who was bringing me good tidings. I loved the mornings then. Sunny or grey, they were as delightful as an unread book. And now I hate them, hate them, hate them. But the old lady got up nevertheless. For she knew Crooked Jack would be coming early to finish the garden. She arranged her beautiful, thick, white hair very carefully and put on her purple silk dress with the little gold spots in it. The old lady always wore silk for motives of economy. It was much cheaper to wear a silk dress that had belonged to her mother than to buy new print at the store. The old lady had plenty of silk dresses which had belonged to her mother. She wore them morning, noon, and night, and Spencervale people considered it an additional evidence of her pride. As for the fashion of them, it was, of course, just because she was too mean to have them made over. They did not dream that the old lady never put on one of the silk dresses without agonizing over its unfashionableness, and that even the eyes of Crooked Jack cast on her antique flounces and overskirts was almost more than her feminine vanity could endure. In spite of the fact that the old lady had not welcomed the new day, its beauty charmed her when she went out for a walk after her dinner, or rather after her midday biscuit. It was so fresh, so sweet, so virgin, and the spruce woods around the old Lloyd place were a thrill with busy spring doings, and all sprinkled through with young lights and shadows. Some of their delight found its way into the old lady's bitter heart as she wandered through them, and when she came out at the little plank bridge over the brook down under the beeches, 
she felt almost gentle and tender once more. There was one big beech there, in particular, which the old lady loved for reasons best known to herself, a great tall beech, with a trunk like the shaft of a gray marble column, and a leafy spread of branches over the still, golden-brown pool made beneath it by the brook. It had been a young sapling in the days that were hallowed by the vanished glory of the old lady's life. The old lady heard childish voices and laughter afar up the lane, which led to William Spencer's place just above the woods. William Spencer's front lane ran out to the main road in a different direction, but this back lane furnished a shortcut, and his children always went to school that way. The old lady shrank hastily back behind a clump of young spruces. She did not like the Spencer children because they always seemed so afraid of her. Through the spruce screen, she could see them coming gaily down the lane, the two older ones in front, the twins behind, clinging to the hands of a tall, slim young girl, the new music teacher, probably. The old lady had heard from the egg peddler that she was going to board at William Spencer's, but she had not heard her name. She looked at her with some curiosity as they drew near, and then, all at once, the old lady's heart gave a great bound and began to beat as it had not beaten for years, while her breath came quickly, and she trembled violently. Who, who could this girl be? Under the new music teacher's straw hat were masses of fine chestnut hair, of the very shade and wave that the old lady remembered on another head in vanished years. From under those waves looked large, violet-blue eyes with very black lashes and brows, and the old lady knew those eyes as well as she knew her own, and the new music teacher's face, with all its beauty of delicate outline and dainty coloring and glad, buoyant youth, was a face from the old lady's past, a perfect resemblance in every respect save one. The face which the old lady remembered had been weak with all its charm, but this girl's face possessed a fine, dominant strength, compact of sweetness and womanliness. As she passed by the old lady's hiding place, she laughed at something one of the children said. And, oh, but the old lady knew that laughter well. She had heard it before under that very beech tree. She watched them until they disappeared over the wooded hill beyond the bridge, and then she went back home as if she walked in a dream. Crooked Jack was delving vigorously in the garden, Ordinarily, the old lady did not talk much with Crooked Jack, for she disliked his weakness for gossip. But now she went into the garden, stately old figure in her purple, gold-spotted silk, with the sunshine gleaming on her white hair. Crooked Jack had seen her go out and had remarked to himself that the old lady was losing ground. She was pale and peaked-looking. He now concluded that he had been mistaken. The old lady's cheeks were pink and her eyes shining. Somewhere in her walk she had shed ten years at least. Crooked Jack leaned on a spade and decided that there weren't many finer-looking women anywhere than old lady Lloyd. Pity she was such an old miser. 
Mr. Spencer, said the old lady graciously. She always spoke very graciously to her inferiors when she talked to them at all. Can you tell me the name of the new music teacher who is boarding at Mr. William Spencer's? Sylvia Gray, said Crooked Jack. The old lady's heart gave another great bound, but she had known it. She had known that girl with Leslie Gray's hair and eyes and laugh must be Leslie Gray's daughter. Crooked Jack spat on his hand and resumed his work, but his tongue went faster than his spade, and the old lady listened greedily. For the first time she enjoyed and blessed Crooked Jack's garrulity and gossip. Every word he uttered was an apple of gold and a picture of silver to her. He had been working at William Spencer's the day the new music teacher had come, and what Crooked Jack couldn't find out about any person in one whole day, at least as far as outward life went, was hardly worth finding out. Next to discovering things did he love telling them, and it would be hard to say which enjoyed the ensuing half-hour more, Crooked Jack or the old lady. Crooked Jack's account, boiled down, amounted to this. Both Miss Gray's parents had died when she was a baby. She had been brought up by an aunt. She was very poor and very ambitious. Once a musical education, finished up Crooked Jack. And by jingle, she ought to have it, for anything like the voice of her I never heard. She sung for us that evening after supper, and I thought was an angel singing. It just went through me like a shaft of light. The Spencer young ones are crazy over her already. She got twenty pupils round here and in Grafton and Avonlea. When the old lady had found out everything Crooked Jack could tell her, she went into the house and sat down by the window of her little sitting room to think it all over. She was tingling from head to foot with excitement. Leslie's daughter. This old lady had had her romance once. Long ago, forty years ago, she had been engaged to Leslie Gray, a young college student who taught in Spencervale for the summer term one year, the golden summer of Margaret Lloyd's life. Leslie had been a shy, dreamy, handsome fellow with literary ambitions, which, as he and Margaret both firmly believed, would one day bring him fame and fortune. Then there had been a foolish, bitter quarrel at the end of that golden summer. Leslie had gone away in anger. Afterwards he had written, but Margaret Lloyd, still in the grasp of her pride and resentment, had sent a harsh answer. No more letters came. Leslie Gray never returned, and one day Margaret wakened to the realization that she had put love out of her life forever. She knew it would never be hers again and from that moment her feet were turned from youth to walk down the valley of shadow to a lonely, eccentric age. Many years later she heard of Leslie's marriage. Then came news of his death, after a life that had not fulfilled his dreams for him. Nothing more she had heard or known, nothing to this day, when she had seen his daughter pass her by, unseeing in the beech hollow. His daughter? and she might have been my daughter, murmured the old lady. Oh, if I could only know her and love her, and perhaps win her love in return, 
but I cannot. I could not have Leslie Gray's daughter know how poor I am, how low I have been brought. I could not bear that. And to think she is living so near me, the darling, just up the lane and over the hill. I can see her go by every day. I can have that dear pleasure, at least. But, oh, if I could only do something for her, give her some little pleasure, it would be such a delight. When the old lady happened to go into her spare room that evening, she saw from it a light shining through a gap in the trees on the hill. She knew that it shone from the Spencer's spare room. So it was Sylvia's light. The old lady stood in the darkness and watched it until it went out, watched it with a great sweetness breathing in her heart, such as risen from old rose leaves when they are stirred. She fancied Sylvia moving about her room, brushing and braiding her long, glistening hair, laying aside her little trinkets and girlish adornments, making her simple preparations for sleep. When the light went out, the old lady pictured a slight white figure kneeling by the window in the soft starshine, and the old lady knelt down then and there and said her own prayers in fellowship. She said the simple form of words she had always used, but a new spirit seemed to inspire them, and she finished with a new petition. Let me think of something I can do for her, dear father, some little, little thing that I can do for her. The old lady had slept in the same room all her life, the one looking north into the spruces, and loved it. But the next day she moved into the spare room without a regret. It was to be her room after this. She must be where she could see Sylvia's light. She put the bed where she could lie in it, and look at that earth star which had suddenly shone across the twilight shadows of her heart. She felt very happy. She had not felt happy for many years, but now a strange new dreamlike interest, remote from the harsh realities of her existence, but nonetheless comforting and alluring, had entered into her life. Besides, she had thought of something she could do for Sylvia, a little, little thing that might give her pleasure. Spencervale people were wont to say regretfully that there were no Mayflowers in Spencervale. The Spencervale young fry, when they wanted Mayflowers, thought they had to go over to the Barrens of Avonlea, six miles away, for them. Old Lady Lloyd knew better. In her many long, solitary rambles, she had discovered a little clearing far back in the woods, a southward-sloping sandy hill on a tract of woodland belonging to a man who lived in town, which in spring was starred over with the pink and white of arbutus. To this clearing the old lady betook herself that afternoon, walking through wood lanes and under dim spruce arches like a woman with a glad purpose. All at once the spring was dear and beautiful to her once more, for love had entered again into her heart, and her starved soul was feasting on its divine nourishment. Old Lady Lloyd found a wealth of mayflowers on the sandy hill. She filled her basket with them, gloating over the loveliness which was to give pleasure to Sylvia. When she got home she wrote on a slip of paper, For Sylvia. It was not likely anyone in Spencervale would know her handwriting, but to make sure she disguised it, writing in round, big letters like a child's. 
she carried her mayflowers down to the hollow and heaped them in a recess between the big roots of the old beech with a little note thrust through a stem on top. Then the old lady deliberately hid behind the spruce clump. She had put on her dark green silk on purpose for hiding. She had not long to wait. Soon Sylvia Gray came down the hill with Mattie Spencer. When she reached the bridge she saw the Mayflowers, and gave an exclamation of delight. Then she saw her name, and her expression changed to wonder. The old lady, peering through the boughs, could have laughed for very pleasure over the success of her little plot. For me? said Sylvia, lifting the flowers. Candy really for me, Mattie. Who could have left them here? Mattie giggled. I believe it was Chris Stewart, she said. I know he was over at Avonlea last night, and Ma says he's taken a notion to you. She knows by the way he looked at you when you were singing night before last. It would be just like him to do something queer like this. He's such a shy fellow with the girls. Sylvia frowned a little. She did not like Mattie's expressions, but she did like Mayflower's, and she did not dislike Chris Stewart, who had seemed to her merely a nice, modest country boy. She lifted the flowers and buried her face in them. Anyway, I must oblige the giver, whoever he or she is, she said merrily. There is nothing I love like Mayflowers. Oh, how sweet they are! When they had passed, the old lady emerged from her lurking place, flushed with triumph. It did not vex her that Sylvia should think Chris Stewart had given her the flowers. Nay, it was all the better, since she would be the less likely to suspect the real donor. The main thing was that Sylvia should have the delight of them. That quite satisfied the old lady, who went back to her lonely house with the cockles of her heart all in a glow. It soon was a matter of gossip in Spencervale that Chris Stewart was leaving Mayflowers at the Beach Hollow for the music teacher every other day. Chris himself denied it, but he was not believed. Firstly, there were no Mayflowers in Spencervale. Secondly, Chris had to go to Carmody every other day to haul milk to the butter factory, and Mayflowers grew in Carmody. And thirdly, the Stewarts always had a romantic streak in them. Was that not enough circumstantial evidence for anybody? As for Sylvia, she did not mind if Chris had a boyish admiration for her, and they expressed it thus delicately. She thought it very nice of him, indeed, when he did not vex her with any other advances, and she was quite content to enjoy his Mayflowers. Old Lady Lloyd heard all the gossip about it from the egg peddler and listened to him with laughter glimmering far down in her eyes. The egg peddler went away and vowed he'd never seen the old lady so spry as she was this spring. She seemed real interested in the young folks' doings. The old lady kept her secret and grew young in it. She walked back to the Mayflower Hill as long as the Mayflowers lasted, and she always hid in the spruces to see Sylvia Gray go by. Every day she loved her more, and yearned after her more deeply. All the long repressed tenderness of her nature overflowed to this girl, who was unconscious of it. She was proud of Sylvia's grace and beauty and sweetness of voice and laughter. She began to like the Spencer children because they worshipped Sylvia. 
She envied Mrs. Spencer because the latter could minister to Sylvia's needs. Even the egg peddler seemed a delightful person because he brought news of Sylvia, her social popularity, her professional success, the love and admiration she had won already. The old lady never dreamed of revealing herself to Sylvia, that in her poverty was not to be thought of for a moment. It would have been very sweet to know her, sweet to have her come to the old house, sweet to talk to her, to enter into her life, but it might not be. The old lady's pride was still far stronger than her love. It was the one thing she had never sacrificed, and never, so she believed, could sacrifice. 2. THE JUNE CHAPTER There were no Mayflowers in June, but now the old lady's garden was full of blossoms, and every morning Sylvia found a bouquet of them by the beach, the perfumed ivory of white narcissus, the flame of tulips, the fairy branches of bleeding heart, the pink and snow of little thorny single sweet-breathed early roses. The old lady had no fear of discovery, for the flowers that grew in her garden grew in every other Spencervale garden as well, including the Stewart garden. Chris Stewart, when he was teased about the music teacher, merely smiled and held his peace. Chris knew perfectly well who was the real giver of those flowers. He had made it his business to find out when the Mayflower gossip started. But since it was evident old lady Lloyd did not wish to be known, Chris told no one. Chris had always liked old lady Lloyd, ever since the day, ten years before, when she had found him crying in the woods with a cut foot and had taken him into her house, and bathed and bound the wound and given him ten cents to buy candy at the store. The old lady went without supper that night because of it, but Chris never knew that. The old lady thought it a most beautiful June. She no longer hated the new days. On the contrary, she welcomed them. Every day is an uncommon day now, she said jubilantly to herself, for did not almost every day bring her a glimpse of Sylvia? Even on rainy days the old lady gallantly braved rheumatism to hide behind her clump of dripping spruces and watch Sylvia pass. The only days she could not see her were Sundays, and no Sundays had ever seemed so long to old Lady Lloyd as those June Sundays did. One day the egg peddler had news for her. The music teacher is going to sing a solo for a collection piece tomorrow, he told her. The old lady's black eyes flashed with interest. I didn't know Miss Gray was a member of the choir, she said. Joined two Sundays ago. I tell you, our music is something worth listening to now. The church will be packed tomorrow, I reckon. Her name's gone all over the country for singing. You ought to come and hear it, Miss Lloyd. The peddler said this out of bravado, merely to show he wasn't scared of the old lady, for all her grand airs. The old lady made no answer, and he thought he had offended her. He went away wishing he hadn't said it. Had he but known it, the old lady had forgotten the existence of all and any egg peddlers. He had blotted himself and his insignificance out of her consciousness by his last sentence. All her thoughts, feelings, and wishes 
were submerged in a very whirlpool of desire to hear Sylvia sing that solo. She went into the house in a tumult and tried to conquer that desire. She could not do it, even though she summoned all her pride to her aid. Pride said, You will have to go to church to hear her. You haven't fit clothes to go to church in. Think what a figure you will make before them all. But for the first time a more insistent voice than pride spoke to her soul, and for the first time the old lady listened to it. It was too true that she had never gone to church since the day on which she had to begin wearing her mother's silk dresses. The old lady herself thought that this was very wicked, and she tried to atone by keeping Sunday very strictly and always having a little service of her own morning and evening. She sang three hymns in her cracked voice, prayed aloud, and read a sermon. But she could not bring herself to go to church in her out-of-date clothes. She, who had once set the fashions in Spencervale, and the longer she stayed away, the more impossible it seemed that she should ever again go. Now the impossible had become not only possible, but insistent. She must go to church and hear Sylvia sing, no matter how ridiculous she appeared, no matter how people talked and laughed at her. Spencervale congregation had a mild sensation the next afternoon. Just before the opening of service, old lady Lloyd walked up the aisle and sat down in the long unoccupied Lloyd pew in front of the pulpit. The old lady's very soul was writhing within her, she recalled the reflection she had seen in her mirror before she left, the old black silk in the mode of thirty years agone, and the queer little bonnet of shired black satin. She thought how absurd she must look in the eyes of her world. As a matter of fact, she did not look in the least absurd. Some women might have, but the old lady's stately distinction of carriage and figure was so subtly commanding that it did away with the consideration of garmenting altogether. The old lady did not know this, but she did know that Mrs. Kimball, the storekeeper's wife, presently rustled into the next pew in the very latest fashion of fabric and mode. She and Mrs. Kimball were the same age, and there had been a time when the latter had been content to imitate Margaret Lloyd's costumes at a humble distance but the storekeeper had proposed, and things were changed now. There sat poor old Lady Lloyd, feeling the change bitterly, and half wishing she had not come to church at all. Then, all at once, the angel of love touched these foolish thoughts, born of vanity and morbid pride, and they melted away as if they had never been. Sylvia Gray had come into the choir and was sitting just where the afternoon sunshine fell over her beautiful hair like a halo. The old lady looked at her in a rapture of satisfied longing, and thenceforth the service was blessed to her, as anything is blessed which comes through the medium of unselfish love, whether human or divine. Nay, are they not one and the same, differing in degree only, not in kind? The old lady had never had such a good, satisfying look at Sylvia before. All her former glimpses had been stolen and fleeting. Now she sat and gazed upon her to her hungry heart's content, 
lingering delightedly over every little charm and loveliness, the way Sylvia's shining hair rippled back from her forehead, the sweet little trick she had of dropping quickly her long-lashed eyelids when she encountered too bold or curious a glance, and the slender, beautifully modeled hands, so like Leslie Gray's hands, that held her hymn-book. She was dressed very plainly in a black skirt and a white shirt-waist, but none of the other girls in the choir, with all their fine feathers, could hold a candle to her, as the egg-peddler said to his wife going home from church. The old lady listened to the opening hymns with keen pleasure. Sylvia's voice thrilled through and dominated them all. But when the ushers got up to take the collection, an undercurrent of subdued excitement flowed over the congregation. Sylvia rose and came forward to Janet Moore's side at the organ. The next moment her beautiful voice soared through the building like the very soul of melody, true, clear, powerful, sweet. Nobody in Spencervale had ever listened to such a voice, except old Lady Lloyd herself, who, in her youth, had heard enough good singing to enable her to be a tolerable judge of it. She realized instantly that this girl of her heart had a great gift, a gift that would some day bring her fame and fortune, if it could be duly trained and developed. Oh, I'm so glad I came to church, thought old Lady Lloyd. When the solo was ended, the old lady's conscience compelled her to drag her eyes and thoughts from Sylvia and fasten them on the minister, who had been flattering himself all through the opening portion of the service that old Lady Lloyd had come to church on his account. He was newly settled, having been in charge of the Spencervale congregation only a few months. He was a clever little fellow, and he honestly thought it was the fame of his preaching that had brought old Lady Lloyd out to church. When the service was over, all the old lady's neighbors came to speak to her, with kindly smile and handshake. They thought they ought to encourage her, now that she had made a start in the right direction. The old lady liked their cordiality, and liked it none the less because she detected in it the same unconscious respect and deference she had been wont to receive in the old days, a respect and deference which her personality compelled from all who approached her. The old lady was surprised to find that she could command it still, in defiance of unfashionable bonnet and ancient attire. Janet Moore and Sylvia Gray walked home from church together. "'Did you see old Lady Lloyd out today?' asked Janet. "'I was amazed when she walked in. She has never been to church in my recollection. What a quaint old figure she is!' She's very rich, you know, but she wears her mother's old clothes and never gets a new thing. Some people think she is mean, but— Concluded Janet charitably. I believe it is simple eccentricity. I felt that Miss Lloyd as soon as I saw her, although I had never seen her before, said Sylvia dreamily. I have been wishing to see her, for a certain reason. She has a very striking face. I should like to meet her, to know her. I don't think it's likely you ever will, said Janet carelessly. She doesn't like young people, and she never goes anywhere. I don't think I'd like to know her. I'd be afraid of her. She has such stately ways and such strange, piercing eyes. 
I shouldn't be afraid of it," said Sylvia to herself as she turned into the Spencer Lane. But I don't expect I ever become acquainted with her. If she knew who I am, I suppose she would dislike me. I suppose she never suspects that I am Leslie Gray's daughter. The minister, thinking it well to strike while the iron was hot, went up to call on old Lady Lloyd the very next afternoon. He went in fear and trembling, for he had heard things about old Lady Lloyd, but she made herself so agreeable in her high-bred fashion that he was delighted, and told his wife when he went home that Spencervale people didn't understand Miss Lloyd. This was perfectly true. But it was by no means certain that the minister understood her either. He made only one mistake in tact, but as the old lady did not snub him for it, he never knew he made it. When he was leaving, he said, "I hope we shall see you at church next Sunday, Miss Lloyd." "Indeed, you will," said the old lady emphatically. Three, the July chapter. The first day of July, Sylvia found a little birch bark boat full of strawberries at the beach in the hollow. They were the earliest of the season. The old lady had found them in one of her secret haunts. They would have been a toothsome addition to the old lady's own slender bill of fare, but she never thought of eating them. She got far more pleasure out of the thought of Sylvia's enjoying them for her tea. Thereafter, the strawberries alternated with the flowers as long as they lasted. And then came blueberries and raspberries. The blueberries grew far away, and the old lady had many a tramp after them. Sometimes her bones ached at night because of it, but what cared the old lady for that? Bone ache is easier to endure than soul ache, and the old lady's soul had stopped aching for the first time in many years. It was being nourished with heavenly manna. One evening, Crooked Jack came up to fix something that had gone wrong with the old lady's well. The old lady wandered affably out to him, for she knew he had been working at the Spencers all day, and there might be crumbs of information about Sylvia to be picked up. I reckon the music teacher is feeling pretty blue this evening," Crooked Jack remarked after straining the old lady's patience to the last verge of human endurance. By expiating on William Spencer's new pump, and Mrs. Spencer's new washing machine, and Amelia Spencer's new young man. Why? Asked the old lady, turning very pale. Had anything happened to Sylvia? Well, she's been invited to a big party at Mrs. Moore's brother's in town, and she hasn't got a dress to go in," said Crooked Jack. There are great swells, and everybody will be got up regardless. Mrs. Spencer was telling me about it. She says Miss Gray can't afford a new dress because she's helping to pay her aunt's doctor bills. She says she's sure Miss Gray feels awful disappointed over it, though she doesn't let on. But Mrs. Spencer says she knows she was crying after she went to bed last night. The old lady turned and went into the house abruptly. This was dreadful. Sylvia must go to that party. She must, but how was it to be managed? Through the old lady's brain passed wild thoughts of her mother's silk dresses, but none of them would be suitable, even if there were time to make one over. 
Never had the old lady so bitterly regretted her vanished wealth. I've only two dollars in the house, she said. And I've got to live on that till the next day the egg peddler comes round. Is there anything I can sell? Anything? Yes, yes, the grape jug. Up to this time, the old lady would as soon have thought of trying to sell her head as the grape jug. The grape jug was two hundred years old and had been in the Lloyd family ever since it was a jug at all. It was a big pot-bellied affair, festooned with pink gilt grapes, and with a verse of poetry printed on one side, and it had been given as a wedding present to the old lady's great-grandmother. As long as the old lady could remember, it had sat on the top shelf in the cupboard in the sitting-room wall, far too precious ever to be used. Two years before, a woman who collected old china had explored Spencervale, and getting word of the grape jug had boldly invaded the old Lloyd place and offered to buy it. She never, to her dying day, forgot the reception the old lady gave her, but being wise in her day and generation, she left her card, saying that if Miss Lloyd ever changed her mind about selling the jug, she would find that she, the aforesaid collector, had not changed hers about buying it. People who make a hobby of heirloom china must meekly overlook snubs, and this particular person had never seen anything she coveted so much as that grape jug. The old lady had torn the card to pieces, but she remembered the name and address. She went to the cupboard and took down the beloved jug. I never thought to part with it, she said wistfully. But Sylvia must have a dress, and there is no other way. And, after all, when I'm gone, who would there be to have it? Strangers would get it then. It might as well go to them now. I'll have to go to town tomorrow morning, for there's no time to lose if the party is Friday night. I haven't been to town for ten years. I dread the thought of going, more than parting with the jug. But for Sylvia's sake. It was all over Spencervale by the next morning that old Lady Lloyd had gone to town, carrying a carefully guarded box. Everybody wondered why she went. Most people supposed she had become too frightened to keep her money in a black box below her bed when there had been two burglaries over at Carmody, and had taken it to the bank. The old lady sought out the address of the china collector, trembling with fear that she might be dead or gone. But the collector was there, very much alive, and as keenly anxious to possess the grape jug as ever. The old lady, pallid with the pain of her trampled pride, sold the grape jug and went away, believing that her great-grandmother must have turned over in her grave at the moment of the transaction. Old Lady Lloyd felt like a traitor to her traditions. But she went unflinchingly to a big store, and guided by that special providence which looks after simple-minded old souls and their dangerous excursions into the world, found a sympathetic clerk who knew just what she wanted and got it for her. The old lady selected a very dainty muslin gown with gloves and slippers in keeping, and she ordered it sent at once, expressage prepaid, to Miss Sylvia Gray in care of William Spencer, Spencervale. Then she paid down the money, the whole price of the jug, minus a dollar and a half for railroad fare, with a grand careless air, and departed. As she marched directly down the aisle of the store, she encountered a sleek, portly, prosperous man coming in. 
As their eyes met, the man started, and his bland face flushed crimson. He lifted his hat and bowed confusedly, but the old lady looked through him as if he wasn't there, and passed on with not a sign of recognition about her. He took one step after her, then stopped and turned away, with a rather disagreeable smile and a shrug of his shoulders. Nobody would have guessed, as the old lady swept out, how her heart was seething with abhorrence and scorn. She would not have had the courage to come to town, even for Sylvia's sake, if she had thought she would meet Andrew Cameron. The mere sight of him opened up anew a sealed fountain of bitterness in her soul. But the thought of Sylvia somehow stemmed the torrent, and presently the old lady was smiling rather triumphantly, thinking rightly that she had come off best in that unwelcome encounter. She, at any rate, had not faltered and colored, and lost her presence of mind. It is little wonder he did, thought the old lady vindictively. It pleased her that Andrew Cameron should lose before her the front of adamant he presented to the world. He was her cousin and the only living creature old Lady Lloyd hated, and she hated and despised him with all the intensity of her intense nature. She and hers had sustained grievous wrong at his hands, and the old lady was convinced that she would rather die than take any notice of his existence. Presently she resolutely put Andrew Cameron out of her mind. It was desecration to think of him and Sylvia together. When she laid her weary head on her pillow that night, she was so happy that even the thought of the vacant shelf in the room below, where the grape jug had always been, gave her only a momentary pang. It is sweet to sacrifice for one we love. It is sweet to have someone to sacrifice for, thought the old lady. Desire grows by what it feeds on. The old lady thought she was content, but Friday evening came and found her in a perfect fever to see Sylvia in her party dress. It was not enough to fancy her in it. Nothing would do the old lady but seeing her. And I shall see her, said the old lady resolutely, looking out from her window at Sylvia's light gleaming through the firs. She wrapped herself in a dark shawl and crept out, slipping down to the hollow and up the wood lane. It was a misty moonlit night, and a wind, fragrant with the aroma of clover fields, blew down the lane to meet her. I wish I could take your perfume, the soul of you, and pour it into her life, said the old lady aloud to that wind. Sylvia Gray was standing in her room, ready for the party. Before her stood Mrs. Spencer and Amelia Spencer and all the little Spencer girls in an admiring semicircle. There was another spectator. Outside, under the lilac bush, old Lady Lloyd was standing. She could see Sylvia plainly, in her dainty dress, with the pale pink roses old Lady Lloyd had left at the beach that day for her in her hair. Pink as they were, they were not so pink as her cheeks, and her eyes shone like stars. Amelia Spencer put up her hand to push back a rose that had fallen a little out of place, and the old lady envied her fiercely. That dress couldn't have fitted better if it had been made for you, said Mrs. Spencer admiringly. Ain't she lovely, Amelia? Who could have sent it? Oh, 
I feel sure that Mrs. Moore was the fairy godmother," said Sylvia. "There is nobody else who would. It was dear of her. She knew I wished so much to go to the party with Janet. I wish Auntie could see me now." Sylvia gave a little sigh in spite of her joy. "There is nothing else to care very much." Ah, Sylvia, you were wrong. There was somebody else, somebody who cared very much. An old lady with eager, devouring eyes, who was standing under the lilac bush, and who presently stole away through the moonlit orchard in the woods like a shadow, going home with a vision of you and your girlish beauty, to companion her through the watches of that summer night.